Welcome to the Athenaeum Review Podcast. I'm Ben Lima, and I'm here today with Andrew Amstutz, who's Assistant Professor of History at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock, and received his PhD in South Asian History at Cornell University. In 2021, he was a member at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, and he's here at UT Dallas at the Edith O'Donnell Institute of Art History to give a talk entitled Buddhist Afterlives, Italian Archaeology and Buddhist Art in Pakistan. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much, Ben, for having me. I'm thrilled to be here at the O'Donnell Institute and to have this opportunity to chat with you. Awesome. Um, well, we're, we're thrilled to have you here, um, especially post-pandemic or uh, post-peak of pandemic. Um, I actually wanted to start by just asking, in, in a broad sense, in terms of your overall research project, um, how, you, how you originally arrived at kind of this area of study and kind of what inspired you to go in this direction. Oh, thank you for that question. It's something I... Uh, think about a lot since this is and this is sort of my my second book project. I'm still in the initial stages of it, um, and so it's such a treat to get a chance to talk about it. So in many ways, I think like like many of us, a lot of the sort of decent research ideas that I have came out of grad school. And in many ways, this originated in a graduate seminar at Cornell University, where um, my broader research focus is on I'm a historian of modern South Asia. I focus on Islam and Muslim communities in in modern South Asia. And at Cornell, I had the opportunity to take a wonderful seminar on Buddhism and Buddhist, um, Buddhist sort of monastic ties in South and Southeast Asia with uh, uh, Professor Anne Blackburn. And as part of that, I needed to write a research paper. And as someone who was interested in Pakistan and sort of the history of Islam in South Asia, I had a vague sense that um, there was all of this ancient Buddhist art and sculpture in Pakistan. And so I decided to try out a research paper on it. And I did that. And it was a Sort of fun and interesting research topic for, for a graduate seminar. And then I sort of put it aside. But what I was lucky in that my graduate advisors, both uh, Professor Blackburn and then uh, uh, Professor Durba Ghosh and Professor Robert Travers really encouraged me to think about publishing it. And it was actually publishing it as an article. And then the um, the sort of excellent questions I got in, in the and sort of the in the review process that sort of pushed me to think more broadly about this. That the initial article was really focused on how in the 1950s and 1960s, Pakistan and sort of Pakistani museums um, and part Pakistani archaeologists in this developing department of archaeology had turned to the ancient Buddhist past, to the history of Gandharan art, um, and exhibiting an ancient past for this new Muslim nation state. And in, actually, maybe I should do that one up. I feel like so thank you again um, for this opportunity. So I'll, I'll describe the project in sort of its broad strokes and, and then sort of how I arrived at it. And again, this is sort of my second book project that I'm, that I'm currently um, beginning the research on. So this project looks at how in the 1950s and 1960s, um, Pakistan, which was uh, created in 1947 out of the partition of British India at the end of uh, British colonial rule, turned to ancient uh, Buddhist sculpture, and uh, Buddhist archaeology in the effort to craft uh, an ancient history for the new nation state. So as, as, as many of your listeners may know, um, uh, when the British Empire ended uh, in 1947, the Indian subcontinent, British ruled India, was divided into Muslim majority Pakistan and, um, and Hindu majority India. And in, in the wake of sort of the violence and trauma of partition, in a sense, both new nation states uh, sort of had and their archaeological and museum um, networks had sort of the challenge of creating, exhibiting, um, refashioning uh, both their sort of inheritance of museums and archaeological institutions from the British Empire, but the sort of rich 
material and artistic heritages in these new territories, in particular for Pakistan, which um, was rather rapidly created in 1947, as alleged as a claimed homeland for India's Muslim minority in the sort of northwestern and what was then northeastern corners of the Indian subcontinent, what's today Pakistan and Bangladesh, sort of had the challenge of crafting an ancient history out of these recently drawn borders and a history that would, and, and particularly an ancient history that would go deeper than Islam. And in this project, I'm looking at how, um, on the one hand, Pakistani public intellectuals, museums, and archaeologists turn to the ancient Buddhist past in particular um, to sort of craft an ancient history for this new nation state, in particular how they turn to the ancient Buddhist kingdom of Gandhara that existed roughly between um, the first century BCE to the fifth century um, CE, and the rich sort of uh, material heritage of sculpture and art and archaeological remains, and thinking about exhibiting um, and crafting an ancient history for this new nation. And a developing part of the project that I'm happy to talk about in more detail is the entanglements and the involvement with archaeologists and museums and scholars from, from Italy. That's, that's, so, that's so interesting. I mean, I, um, I, I would be interested, actually, if you want to elaborate a little bit on, on that last point about the connections with Italy and how, how that developed. Yeah, no, uh, thank you. And this has one, been one of the really sort of surprising and or initially at least surprising for me and really intellectually stimulating parts of this project. But initially, um, I published an article on sort of the ways in which Pakistani museums um, and its early sort of Department of Archaeology in the 50s and early 60s turned to the ancient Buddhist past. And initially, I thought of this as sort of this sort of quixotic um, undertaking of, um, of Pakistan's early um, post-colonial uh, sort of nascent museum network and our, our, our archaeological networks. And there was sort of a specific one-off story about sort of nationalism and, and the ways in which uh, post-colonial nation states have to sort of engage with what's within their borders and thinking about crafting um, a, a sort of an ancient past in this early post-colonial moment. But when I was revising, revising that, that article, what I realized was is that there were significant, um, there's a significant sort of global angle to this story as well, that not only in the 50s and 60s did Pakistani museums, the Pakistan's Department of Archaeology and Museums send uh, sort of this Gandharan sculpture, this sort of rich heritage of Buddhist um, art on sort of traveling exhibits, temporary exhibits around the world, both in Southeast Asia um, and in Europe and the United States, but that Italian archaeologists were particularly involved in that. And then in fact, the um, oldest and longest lasting um, foreign archaeological mission in the Indian subcontinent after the end of British colonial rule is in fact um, the Italian uh, archaeological mission in Pakistan. It was founded um, in 1956 and which continues to the present. And not only is it this fascinating history of, in a sense, um, European involvement with archaeology in the Indian subcontinent after the end of the British Empire, but it's also on, from the Italian side, the longest lasting, as far as I know, the longest lasting Italian archaeological mission outside of the contemporary borders of the Italian Republic. And one of the early ones that were founded at, after the end of the second, um, after the end of the Second World War. And what's particularly interesting for me in terms of the history of the um, Italian archaeological mission in Pakistan is precisely the sort of this dual side of it. There's such a rich body of scholarship and um, about the role of archaeology and museums um, in, in the British Empire 
in the Indian subcontinent and how British colonial officials engage with archaeology, engage with museums in sort of the fashioning of colonial knowledge and in, in ruling in South Asia. And then, um, of course, after independence in 1947, the ways in which the Indian nation state um, engages with its, its ancient history. What's so interesting to me about the history of the Italian archaeological mission in Pakistan is it's a chance, one, to shift our lens to Pakistan, which, is, which there's been significantly less study of in terms of how post-colonial um, intellectuals, archaeologists, and museum curators in Pakistan engage the region's ancient past. But it's also the chance to look at a really significant and fascinating European or history of European engagement with archaeology in the Indian subcontinent that's separate from sort of British colonial involvement. And it was also a distinctly post-colonial, post-empire project. So that's sort of the origins of that. It's it's so it's so interesting. And one of the things that um I found very interesting in your article was I guess the the, the whole general question of whatever connection may exist between uh, this um, ancient art of Gondara and um, and Greek or Hellenistic um, uh, traditions, because uh, you know, going in, one might think that kind of post-colonial situations um, that the the new nations are interested in kind of pushing away from and separating from any any connection to Europe, but yet it, it seems that. On the contrary, at least in this case, there was the the scholars in Pakistan actually were were interested in exploring the connections between um, ancient Greek and Gondoran art. And I, I wondered if you could speak about that and kind of how it developed and what what what's going on and maybe what the current sort of sense of that is. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much for that question. This is something that I uh, I continue to think a lot about, and I just want to note that I'm. Uh, I, I'm certainly not qualified to talk about sort of the, the sort of archaeological side of things and, and even the sort of art historical side of things. This is an ongoing topic of discussion yeah. and debate in as many ways a, a contentious topic of debate. And what, what I'm particularly interested in is sort of thinking about, um, as a historian of modern South Asia, the ways in which sort of post-colonial intellectuals and, and actors sort of engage this, this sort of art historical and archaeological knowledge and, and particularly how they present it. To, to the public um, in, in, in South Asia, both, but also, of course, in, in Italy. So um, the, the fascinating thing about Gandharan art and, and where it sort of emerges as, as a category um, in sort of in, in art history, and here I'm, I'm building a lot on the work of Mikhail Falser, is that um, it often looks as if it's sort of a, a blending of sort of Indic uh, Buddhist artistic themes and Greco-Roman. Um, Greco-Roman themes, and this is something in particular in the late 19th and early 20th century, British colonial officials, um, both French and British um, archaeologists, were uh, intrigued and fascinated by, and it really became Gandharan art, and the fact that this, in particular Gandharan Buddhist sculpture, looked, looks as if it may have been in some way influenced, impacted um, by Greco-Roman themes, made it, 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 it meant that it was uh, one of the sort of uh, arenas of artistic production in uh, South Asia, the British colonial officials were particularly interested in. Because of this, it also was used at times in um, British colonial museums and in sort of colonial uh, uh, colonial projects in a way to claim that um, to assert a kind of uh, European superiority to, to the sort of art of India. And because of the ways in which sort of the British colonial establishment used kind of the Gandharan art 
with the formation of sort of uh, sort of nationalist canon of Indian art history starting in the late 19th and early 20th century for these sort of early actors and forming a sort of distinctive art history for India, there was a real reaction against Bandara. And um, in particular, there's wonderful scholarship by Kavita Singh and Tapati Guha Kurta that talk about how, in a sense, the rejection of Bandara was key to the fashioning of an art history, a distinct, distinctive art history for India because of the ways in which um, particularly British colonial officials and British museums used Gandhara in a sense to make sense of the British Empire in the present. And, um, and, and so in a sense, the sort of the ways in which Gandhara looked like a kind of fusion or way in which uh, to sort of late 19th and early 20th century European eyes, it looked like a sort of, if you will, cosmopolitan conjunction between sort of Greco-Roman art and Indian art that became sort of a challenge for early um, the development of Indian sort of art historical narrative, because it was important to elevate Indian, what they saw as distinctly Indian sculpture as opposed to sculpture that was influenced potentially by, by Europe. Precisely because of this, and because for Indian art historians in the sort of early 20th century, it was important to sort of excise Gandhara uh, to some extent, not, not completely, I'm sort of oversimplifying here. Um, this presented a great opportunity in a sense for Pakistan because when Pakistan was created as an alleged homeland for Indian Muslims in 1947, there was this sort of challenge of attempting to craft a national history, a national culture for this nation state that had just recently been created during the trauma of partition with rapidly drawn borders mm -hmm. to try to distinguish it culturally, linguistically, historically from India, when in fact these, these regions are deeply intertwined. So this Buddhist sculpture that, that many sort of early Indian art historians who were uninterested in presented a tremendous opportunity. One of the things that, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting that was in terms of the, um, the kind of positioning and, and the, the, the narratives that are told was um, it, in the article you described how one of the, uh, one of the Pakistani scholars in, in kind of presenting, presenting the history uh, uh, described a situation in which um, the, uh, the the Buddhists of of this period had eventually been kind of um, uh, subjugated by by the Brahmins, he said, and then the uh, eventually when the first Muslim ruler arrived, that uh, that this ruler was sort of a uh, a liberator of of the Buddhists from uh, from their um, kind of subjugated position under under the Brahmins and as he put it and and it, it just seemed like um kind of the the positioning of the different uh kind of cultures against one another is is, is, is kind of kind of complex um and I, I guess maybe I would I would ask um whether that's that that kind of story is that kind of still the story that's told today or or is it I'm just curious whether whether people would still present it that way or how you see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, thank you for asking that question. In particular, um, there's, uh, and there's this early moment in, in the 50s and particularly in the 60s when, and again, this is in many ways, um, I think it's important to point out, that particularly when we're looking at uh, state actors in, in some state museums, is that they're being rather creative in the age of <laughs> histories they're yeah. telling. That yeah. In many ways, these aren't histories that are particularly well-rounded in, in, in the evidence that they have, but they're in a sense trying to craft, yeah. imagine um, 
create, and maybe at times in a rather cynical way, one could say, <laughs> a distinctive ancient history for this newly created country that yeah. can be uh, that can be different from India. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it's not just Pakistan that's doing. Oh, this. of course, yeah. It's <laughs> Every, yeah, that, yeah. All the, yeah. The, that all countries are doing. But what's interesting about this moment to me is 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 two ways. One in which it presents these opportunities for state actors and for people that are trying to craft this sort of ancient national history. But it also opens, opens up opportunities for, in a sense, thinking beyond and destabilizing these sort of these national narratives. In particular, in the case that you mentioned of Ishtiaq Hussein Qureshi, is he was a prominent um, government official um, and historian, um, first in, in late colonial Delhi and then early post-colonial Pakistan. And he goes on a tour um, in the early 1960s of Southeast Asia, particularly to Thailand, talking about Pakistan's ancient um, Buddhist past and how uh, the new nation state allegedly embraces its um, Buddhist artistic heritage. And he sort of creatively, if you will, maybe imaginatively um, crafts his history where um, there's not a significant Buddhist population in contemporary Pakistan. There is a small Buddhist population in what is now Bangladesh. It was then East Pakistan. Um, and so he crafted a history in which, um, uh, so, so let me backtrack a little bit, that often in sort of the sort of national histories that are told in Pakistan, the arrival of um, Islam in South Asia with Muhammad bin Qasim in the early 7th century is often a moment that's recovered as sort of an originary moment in mm -hmm. these sort of national histories. But in engaging the Buddhist past, it was in Ishtiaq Hussein Qureshi wanted to craft it in a way to um, to make to frame it as if Muslims had arrived as liberators of Buddhists mm -hmm. um, in opposition to what he termed as sort of, in his words, a sort of Brahmin oppression. What's interesting about this is it's, 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 it's he isn't really sort of historically accurate, but in many ways you can see a certain kind of narrative of Muslim nationalism. Mm -hmm from the 1930s and 1940s, um, and in particular kind of Muslim nationalism that led to Pakistan, influencing this narration of an ancient Buddhist past and the positioning of Muslims um, in the seventh, eighth, and then later centuries as liberators mm -hmm. of Buddhists um, from, um, from what he at least termed from, from Brahmins. And I, you can sort of see how he's crafty. He's, he's imagining the ancient past through the lens of a nationalist present. What's interesting for me, though, is also how this destabilizes, in a sense, or unsettles in some ways, um, some of the contours, if you will, of religious nationalism in South Asia. Since, of course, um, and there's, a, there's a vast literature and, and a lot of discussion about the role of religious nationalism and religion and politics in, in the modern Indian subcontinent. But of course, there's a certain way in which the sort of the sorting that, um, that partition imposes and that certain versions of uh, Muslim nationalism and Hindu nationalism impose upon the subcontinent is the idea that India should engage sort of the Hindu past and maybe the Buddhist past, whereas Pakistan should engage with, with Islam in this sort of certain logic of, of partition. Whereas, of course, there's ways in which um, the engagement with the ancient Buddhist past by certain sort of museums and, and state actors can be very sort of in the, in, the, in the service of state projects. But also it destabilizes this sort of logic of sort of Islam for Pakistan, right. Hinduism, for India, and as I continue to do this research, it seems to also open up opportunities for um, religious minority communities in Pakistan to sort of push back on certain state narratives and also to imagine a past that includes um, them as well. One of the um, one of the other things that um, 
that that struck me in the article, and I was interested in in your uh, sense of kind of the broader picture. There was there was this idea, um, and again, this I guess would be like nineteen fifties and sixties, um, that for instance, from uh, from at least certain British perspective, possibly like the British Protestant perspective, there was this uh, kind of favorable view of Buddhism as as quote unquote rational and ethical, as as opposed to uh, as opposed to Hinduism, um, and and that this from from the kind of uh, and correct me if this if this is if this is wrong, but but it seemed to me that this idea that from a from the perspective that identifies uh, modernity and modernization with with secularization, that uh, that there is this narrative of of saying like the you know the so called rational ethical system uh, is is kind of something that we can embrace as we as we become modern and so forth and um, and while rejecting maybe these other traditions. Now, um, as I understand it, I mean, certainly like after this period um, from the, you know, not just here in Pakistan, but throughout the world, uh, you know, whether whether it's Iran or whether I guess in, in Pakistan as well, or just any number of countries that this or this country, this huge upsurge in um, in religion in more recent times has has made it seem less like kind of secularization is the future and modernity is the future. So I guess I guess my question would be. Um, that this 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 narrative of like a kind of rational ethical Buddhism and and versus like other traditions is that still a kind of discourse that um, that 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 is engaged in at all or or is there um, given given the way that culture and and politics have changed in Pakistan since then is there um, are, I guess would people be less friendly to the kind of secularization idea I mean I don't know if that makes sense but I'm yeah no I, absolutely thank you for that question and again I'll I'll talk first about the 50s and 60s and, and, and then about um, the present. I think you're absolutely right, particularly in these sort of early exhibits in the 50s, in particular in the 50s and early 60s, particularly with the case of M.A. Shapur in the Peshawar Museum, um, where there is an almost a very explicit embrace, both of this sort of very British colonial idea of sort of Protestantized or uh, Buddhism, um, this uh, a certain British colonial engagement with Buddhism, that they're certainly building on that. They're also very strategically, I think, building on what was then in this this idea that of this shift from alleged Greek influence to alleged Roman influence in um, in um, on sort of Gandharan art. And again, this is something that was very much of of a particular moment in the 30s, 40s, and early 50s, um, building on the scholarship of Mortimer Wheeler and Benjamin um, Rowland is. Um, is, is um, that uh, these early Pakistani um, museums are, are engaging this idea of sort of, certainly a sort of Protestantized Buddhism, but also this potential Roman influence on, or Greek influence through the Roman Empire on Gandharan art that's very much been, I think, contested and to a large extent maybe discredited in the scholarship since then that they're building on. But to get to your question about um, about what where is this, where is this situated in terms of religious nationalism sort of uh, in secularization is for me, what's so interesting here is that in many ways you can, you, you could read these sort of this admittedly at times selective and quixotic engagement with the Buddhist past is a way of crafting a history for Pakistan that isn't just about Islam. Mm -hmm. It's sort of thinking about oh, where is Pakistan's place in the uh, sort of culturally uh, in the world, certainly engaging with Islam, but also looking beyond it. And, and certainly that's true in the 50s and 60s. I think that's particularly true 
Um, if you look at how Gandharan art is often used in exhibits in the United States and in Europe, both from Pakistan and from Afghanistan after 9-11. There's a way in which it's very much deployed as a kind of, not always particularly subtly, as sort of an alternative um, to Islam. What's interesting for me about this movement in the 50s and 60s is that I don't think all of these actors see it as an alternative to Islam. In many ways, I think they're using and engaging and exhibiting and talking about in a very publicly oriented fashion. This isn't about sort of archaeological scholarship or historical scholarship, but in terms of how to engage the public with this art, they're thinking about it and thinking about with this art is a way to think about what does it mean for Pakistan to be a um, an Islamic Republic? What does it mean for Pakistan to be a sort of uh, a nation that's defined to some extent in terms of religion that I think particularly in the 50s and 60s, the many of these sort of Pakistani historians, archaeologists, public intellectuals, museum curators, they're, they're sort of deliberately sort of engaging, displaying, thinking about this ancient Buddhist sculpture is a way in their terms and to think about Pakistan as a sacred region and as a veritable holy land of Buddhism, these are their terms, before Islam. So you can see in this, certainly it's a way of trying to sort of distinguish the territories that became, uh, rather accidentally in some ways, became Pakistan in 1947 to make sense of them yeah. um, for a nationalist project. But it's also a way that in a sense, if in the sort of the, the violence and trauma of partition, suddenly these intellectuals, scholars, um, museum curators and archaeologists, they have this rich heritage and they have this country that they need to make sense of. It's a way to try to think about the place of religion in public life, um, the place of Islam in public life, in sort of a different way. So I think for them, in many ways, it's quite compatible yeah. in this sort of 50s and 60s moment. And again, I think suggests that there can be a way in which, um, particularly after um, um, after a particular turn in Pakistani politics um, under Ziaul Haq, um, uh, the uh, military dictatorship in the 1980s, a way of thinking about um, uh, religious nationalism or sort of uh, Islamic politics, if you will, in Pakistan, in terms of kind of a teleology of sort of a kind of conservative politicized Islam. I think to some extent what this history of, of, of museum and, and archeological and in many ways public history engagement with Buddhist art points to a longer history of people thinking about what does it mean to be um, a nation state defined in terms of religion? Um, how is this both deeply tied to Islam, but how does it also push beyond that? Excellent. Well, we'll, uh, we'll be really um, excited to see that as it develops. Um, so we've been speaking today with Andrew Amstutz, who's Assistant Professor of History at University of Arkansas at Little Rock, and he's here at the Edith O'Donnell Institute of Art History to give a talk entitled Buddhist Afterlives, Italian Archaeology and Buddhist Art in Pakistan. Um, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat to chat with you. Well, absolutely. Likewise. Well, this is the Athenaeum Review podcast, and you can find out more at athenaeumreview.org.